welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? I'm glad to have you back. Absolutely. After I, last week. I, I missed me quite a bit. Yeah, I was, yeah, I, I, I was uh, a little bit bummed because I know how busy you are. You probably haven't listened to the Sundance no, uh, of course wrap not. up and <laughs> won't get a chance to. But uh, I was bummed because, you know, uh, not to get like, uh, gross or whatever uh, uh, about it. I love talking about movies with you. Oh, that's nice. And so there is a certain a bit of like when I see a movie that I'm excited to talk about. Part of the deal is I can't wait to tell Tyler about this movie. Oh, you know what I mean? That's nice to hear. Um, so what you know? Uh, but you know, thanks to Scott and Dan, and we definitely got to cover more movies by having uh, Dan come in because right. we saw a bunch of stuff that neither Scott or I saw. Um, well, and I'll say this, that uh, I, I recently did a supplemental episode with Beverly Gray uh, that has right. posted uh, a few days ago. And as far as she's concerned, you don't even fucking exist. Yeah, she's like, never she's met me. She's been on twice yeah. in, in like three months and yeah. you're never there. And so like she naturally, un- understandably, she's like, so, you know, tell me more about like when you came up with like the BPs and stuff. And, and I was like. Now, admittedly, with the BPs, it was mostly yeah, me. That's all you. <laughs> but at the same time, like I had to say, like, well, it is me and David. So if you want to, you know, so and I believe she made a joke. She's like, I'll believe it when I see it, <laughs> which was very nice of her. And thank you. Uh, thank you, Beverly, for uh, coming on the show. Um, OK, sorry. We can uh, we can move on. Um, but, you know, what's funny, though, is like I had a similar uh, interaction at Sundance with uh, another critic that I hadn't talked to and hadn't seen in a while. And he was like, uh and he was like, so are you still with Battleship Pretension? And he like corrected himself. He's like, well, I guess you are Battleship Pretension. And I had to be like, well, <laughs> <laughs> there is uh, 50% more as it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you've never met this person. So I have never yeah. met. Th- yeah. And I, uh, did I ever, have I ever met Angie? I feel uh, like I you never met, actually have. Yeah. But Angie wasn't uh, my, uh, yeah. Uh, my, my usual, uh, Sundance or Comic-Con uh, buddy Angie Han of Mashable was not at Sundance this year. Okay. okay. Um, so uh, Who is this other person, this person that has gotten things so wrong? Uh, it was actually David Ehrlich of IndieWire.com. <laughs> um, I feel uh, like... I feel like I've met him. I might have been introduced to him at a, uh, at a screening once. Um, oh, okay. I mean, he doesn't live in Los Angeles, so... Uh, yeah, because it was a rare... I might be thinking of someone else. Anyway, m- we can move on. Anyway, um, David, I'm here too. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the other guy. <laughs> that David who is yeah. definitely listening. Um, all right. So here's what I wanted to talk about before we get into the topic. Okay. Um, which I'm very excited for this topic because it, uh, I'm, I'm half excited in that I'm excited to talk about the, uh, the, to start our like month of best movies of the year mm-hmm. coverage. But this topic always throws me for a loop, but we'll get back into that okay. uh, later. I think I cracked it this year. Um, but no, what I want to talk about is the relative underperformance of call me by your name at the box office. Okay. And because it's caused a number, it's, it's inspired a number of think pieces that I've read. Okay. Um, the basic argument of which is of which are, cause I read more than one, oh, <laughs> um, uh, that the old like model for this type of movie with the like drawn out platform release sure. that is meant to be goosed by nominations and stuff as it goes on. Um, 
in a world in which the culture is so collapsed by the internet on top of itself, that model doesn't work anymore. You can't, uh, that it's, it's shooting yourself in the foot to expect people in smaller markets to wait nine weeks or like, it really is like nine weeks between calling by your names, like qualifying run and it like finally opening wide at the end of January. Um, uh, and, and that, um, it's maybe doing more, uh, harm than good to stick, to stick to that because, th- you know, everyone's, uh, especially with a movie like home by your name that, and I'm part of the problem here that we've been hi- hyping since Sundance, yeah. like yeah. there's some fatigue that has led to people either stopping caring about calling by your name or maybe torrenting it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. sure. Uh, cause as soon as, you know, as much as they try to, to stop it as soon as screeners go out, these stuff, these things start showing up on torrent sites. Um, uh, I mean, that's been the case forever. Um, you know, um, and it it just, it, it just reminds me of, um, there was, this was going back forever ago where, you know, the HBO model pre HBO go, um, was that they would release the previous season of the show on DVD in the buildup to the next season premiering, mm-hmm. which meant there was a long time you couldn't see a season of an HBO. There was no way to see it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, maybe there was like, if you had, you know, I, when I had Time Warner, there was HBO on demand and I could watch some stuff uh, that way. Um, and, and I remember there was the, I think it's the oatmeal.com did a whole thing about like, basically like this is the culture people expect to be able to access something once it exists. Yes. The idea of the window between theatrical and home video or, you know, TV broadcast and home video, uh, increasingly just seems insane to the consumer. Yeah. Uh, and to what extent, and I'm not arguing this, but like to what extent can you blame someone for seeking, an illegal method when, I mean, and, and, and is that even really like if you're, uh, if someone said this to, uh, uh, here's a name that will come up later in the show. Sean Baker, director of Florida project was complaining on Twitter about people, him seeing people looking for like just sending tweets. Like, does anyone know where I can find, you know, a torrent of the Florida project or whatever. Yeah. And he was like complaining about that. And, and I saw some people sort of like jumped down his throat. Like, you know, the people in most of the country have no way of seeing it right now. Right. And torrenting the Florida project in, you know, early January, if you live in, uh, I, I don't know, Wyoming is not, is, it's practically not even stealing because that's not money that would have, they would have spent on the Florida right. project anyway. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so this, I guess the argument I want to bring up is, uh, should everything just be available all the time now? It's tough because, you know, an argument could be made that's for something like Call Me By Your Name or the Florida Project, um, that like it gets a qualifying run and it gets, you know, an initial, let's say early December, um, and it gets uh, released in some large cities theatrically. And then like three weeks later, you can rent it digitally. Um, now, and that way, like while there's still some kind of buzz, uh, people can can watch it. But the thing is, this like there are theaters in uh, Los Angeles that you know were playing Mudbound 
mm-hmm. they're playing the Meyerowitz stories, mm-hmm. and I, admittedly, I haven't watched either of those movies anyway, but <laughs> but I, I I plan to, but it definitely it definitely creates less of a sense of urgency when I realize like oh well these were made for Netflix like yes I can see them on the big screen but a it's free if I watch it at home and also in my mind and I know this is probably not right but in my mind it's like well if it's made for Netflix like it was probably shot with a smaller screen in mind which is well, I, I mean in that's like a, Mudbound was acquired by Netflix so that's right yeah a that's different a different thing, thing. yeah um but either way, like the availability of it, um, you know, there, there is something to be said for just like, well, I can either leave my house, drive somewhere to be somewhere at a specific time and I guess potentially risk not getting tickets or whatever, or I can guarantee I see it by staying home. And I do think that like, there's always the possibility that especially with smaller budget films, um, that yes, you won't have to worry about people torrenting it. And so you get the digital money, but you might be completely undercutting whatever theatrical money you're Yeah, getting. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely not an easy solution. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and you also can't, you know, you can't open wide with calling by your name. You know, you can't put it in 2000 theaters and at once. Right. Just because, uh, just the cost of the DCPs, you know, to make that many DCPs yeah. and, and get the hard drives out and, and, and everything is, would be, uh, you know, more expensive than you would want to spend on a small movie like that. And that's the thing is like, if you, if you feel like, okay, well let's, let's have it open wide, like in December, you know, so that like it premieres and then a week later, or two weeks later it goes wide. It's like, okay, well now you're fighting with star Wars and Jumanji Whereas in January, you're not fighting with quite as much, maybe the Super Bowl. Um, And so, yeah, it does just sort of feel like, because of course the Oscars do give things a bump, um, but by then it could be seen as old news, especially now that everything goes so fast. Yeah. Yeah. There is no easy answer here because here's the thing. Okay. I am in a film marketing class that is taught by one of the big publicists in in this city like she ta- she has taken time off from her actual job and uh, not taking time off she still does it but like you know there's a reason that we that our class meets at night because she is busy doing this stuff during the day and then she comes and gives very very honest uh insights into the way the f- the film world works as mm-hmm. far as marketing so like we've talked about deciding a date we've talked about publicity we've talked about product placement we've talked about uh you know tracking uh like tracking numbers and stuff and it's fascinating it's hard not to get a little bit cynical about it but um honestly any question (coughs) excuse me any question like this i feel like i could take to her Mm -hmm. and say like hey what's is there a solution to this or is it just this is how it's going to be because unless they decide to move the Oscars, you know, and make that like and have it be earlier right. and have that bump sooner so that people don't get worn out by it. Yeah. But that would probably hurt films in other ways, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just feel. Like, and then, of course, for myself, on one hand, I think in terms of torrenting and, I th- and part of me is like, hey, if it means people are seeing a smaller movie, great. 
but then the fact that that movie is now losing money means yeah, that there will be fewer of them, even though there's maybe more of a demand. Yes, I'm all I'm I have generally have no problem with people watching stuff at home, but legally. Yes, I'm not like I've never been precious about the theater going experience. I, as I've said in this podcast before, I fell in love with movies watching them on VHS in my my <laughs> parents' basement at two o'clock <laughs> on in the a morning. Small TV, yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't fall in love with movies at the movie theater. Yeah, I first um, saw I first saw Citizen Kane uh-huh. on like a <laughs> 13 inch screen in my parents' basement on VHS. Like you know, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. We were talking in the. Um, Oh, off mic, we were talking about JFK. I, don't, I still don't think I've ever seen JFK widescreen. <laughs> I mean, only think I've oh, seen wow. it pan and scan. <laughs> um, uh, Definitely worth seeking out uh, in widescreen. Yeah, I should I should do that. Um, That's one that if I really need to pay more attention to like repertory screenings here in the in LA because there are movies that I would love to see on the big screen. JFK being a movie I abs- I adore. I mm-hmm. love JFK, and I feel like seeing that in the theater because it is certainly from a cinematography standpoint or from an editing standpoint, it is not a passive movie. I'm sure it would like be every bit as pulse pounding as an action film. Uh, if yeah. I saw it on the big screen. Um, okay. So we arrived at no solutions because there are no easy answers here, but yeah. I definitely think, um, maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe call me by your name should be available on VOD, uh, now, or at least like, a week or two before the Oscars so people can see it. And that's the other thing is like people are always talking about the low rating, the low ratings of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons that they expanded the the slate of nominees to be up to 10 instead of just five was so that like more movies that maybe people have seen uh, get nominated. Uh, but at the same time, if people have, you know, if people have seen that you need to give them the opportunity to see the movies that are nominated. And so Mm -hmm. it seems to me like there are certain movies that the moment those nominations come out, it's like, all right, VOD, you can see call, you can see call me by your name right now at home. And that way you can be rooting for it or whatever. Uh, like you could take advantage of that bump, but then that might hurt theatrical box office. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I don't, like I said, this is almost an entirely different discussion, but, um, I'm reminded of something, a, a bit that I saw Pat and Oswald do once about, uh, MP3s cause MP3s don't sound as good. You know, they're compressed. Yeah. They're not as good as listening to a record or whatever, or listening to it on your Pono. If you're a Neil Young fan, um, uh, but the trade-off is you can fit every song you ever heard in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm okay with sacrificing some of the grand theatrical experience for more people being able to see more movies. Yeah. Um, that said, I still, uh, hate Netflix in a lot of ways because, uh, I think they, it's so clear that they see their movies as product. No you know, which I know obviously any studio does that's the, it's a business, you yeah. know, but you can still get the impression from them that they're excited about a movie. They want you to see it. Whereas Netflix, it's just product unless it, unless it takes off like stranger things, Netflix doesn't seem to care. And that's like, uh, we, you weren't here last week. We were talking about, um, cause I saw a couple of Netflix movies, uh, at Sundance. One of them was Tamar Jenkins, the movie private life. And it's so like, 
it was so crushing, I guess, at the end of the movie to see the Netflix logo again to be like, oh, this movie's so good, but it's going to be another Meyerowitz. Like, yeah, it's the people who it's for are going to see it and love it, but it's not going to break through like it could because Netflix doesn't care. Yeah, it's 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 a big part of the research I was doing for a paper that I wrote last year that uh, that, yeah, even if they acquire a movie at a film festival, a film that got a lot of press they are not going to do what is necessary to really raise the film's profile. They will do it for a week mm-hmm. and then it's just on to the next thing. Like yeah. it's very much quantity. I mean, it's not even quantity over quality. It's quantity over everything mm-hmm. quality. Sure. <laughs> we just need a lot of it, Yeah, you know? And something that struck me the other day is most film lovers that I know really despise Netflix kind of the way they did blockbuster many years ago. (laughs) And Netflix came about because the official story is that it came about as a repudiation of blockbuster. They wanted to do things their own way. And lo and behold, they have become, and I remember reading the trade magazines, uh, when I worked at blockbuster and they referred to blockbuster as a big blue. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's like, well, we've got big red now uh-huh. and that's, and they are, I don't think they're going anywhere. I don't think anything's going to come along to come to undercut them the way something did with the, the way they did with, with blockbuster. But I definitely soon, but eventually someone will come up with something. Someone will come up with, come up with something. Nothing yeah. is permanent. Oh man, watch out. <laughs> Someone's getting ecclesiastical. Um, all right. So, uh, let's move on. Let's pay some bills. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent international and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy all for only eight ninety nine a month. Plus when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Now, Mubi has partnered with Unifrance's My French Film Festival to bring you Justine Triette's In Bed with Victoria. I love this description. It's fascinating. A feminist revision of the romantic comedy, proving that the familiar can still be unpredictable. Uh, but then we also want to remind you that, uh, speaking of theatrical distribution, um, Mubi has released Lover for a Day, which is being rolled out bit mm-hmm. by bit over the uh, in the UK and in the US. Um, and so it is still playing in select theaters in New Orleans, Pittsburgh, Oklahoma City, Santa Fe, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Miami. And then over the next month, it's still going to be coming out. Awesome. So uh, <laughs> keep an eye out for that. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension as far as the streaming service of Mubi. You can try it free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I both use them each and every day of our lives. Today, I had to listen to that new Churches Jam. Churches had their put out their first single in a couple of years. It's called Get Out. It has nothing to do with Jordan Peele's movie, uh, but it's, it's terrific. I'm a big Churches fan. I'm a Churches uh, stan, as the kids say. Um, 
So this is uh, exhausting. It sounded terrific on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you uh, show a little patience, uh, like Axel Rose said, um, uh, and uh, use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Uh, I also, I always forget to, to do this. I want to tell you real quick what's on the site this week. Okay. You know, um, on, uh, over at battleshipretention.com, um, over a musical notation. That's uh West Anthony's, uh, podcast about movie music. He did a his second part of his John Williams and Steven Spielberg series. Um, what's uh, our top 10 lists are rolling out a couple of week, uh, uh, building up to, to our own top 10 list, but mm-hmm. all our contributors, uh, Jim's Jim's just went up. Um, your special episode with Beverly that you mentioned, uh, Beverly gray is up. Uh, Aaron's got the Chicago report. Um, sorry, report. There we go. Uh, <laughs> and Alex has his criterion predictions. There's so much, and that's just scraping the service. There's so much shit going on over to battleship including all of our premium content, uh, which is a way to support the show and get some fun stuff to listen to. Indeed. It's not, yeah, we're not asking for donations. We made some entertainment for you and you can find it in the right hand column, uh, of, the, of battleshipretention.com. That's right. Let's you'll get into it. You'll need to scroll down a bit. You need to scroll down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You got a recent, let's see, you got recent theatrical reviews, mm-hmm. then you got recent home video reviews, then you get to the premium content after yes. that? Yeah. All right. Uh, but today's show, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. This is, uh, we're doing it a little early because uh, we're, we have to fit a profile into yeah. our... We're doing it so early that for a moment I was like, holy shit, do I have the right episode in mind? <laughs> like, did I write down all the right stuff? I did. Yeah. Okay. We're doing uh, our annual uh, look at our favorite individual achievements in film in the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you, okay, so uh, what I hinted at earlier, I always struggle with this episode. Okay. Because I just... If I really do pick my favorite individual achievements, I'm kind of going to end up talking about the same stuff that I'm going to be going to talk about in a few weeks when we do our top ten. Yes. Anyway, uh, and, but then I, and I think I kind of did a version of this last year too. So I started next week. We'll do um, an episode that uh, you came up with in like 2011 or 2012. Oh, through um, the cracks uh, that I love, called, yeah. in which we highlight stuff that isn't going to be. Uh, in our top 10, not going to be an honorable mention. It's not going to be our most underrated or overrated or worst. It's just, we're each going to pick five movies and it might not think even are be worth, great movies. No, but think yeah. are worth, maybe got a little overlooked or think are worth, um, talking about. Yes. And so I kind of decided to combine that approach this time to the individual achievements. That is what, so, that's what I do. Especially once we start doing the BPs, 
Right. It's like, well, I don't want to just repeat. I don't want to yeah. repeat the BP. So essentially what I do is I look at, okay, what was my, what were my BP submissions and what was not nominated? And I pick from yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I, uh, I mean, there's probably some BP overlap here, but, um, so I think the movies I'll be talking about are mostly uh, in my favorite movies of the year, but sure. I'm talking about contributions to these movies that haven't in in some cases haven't been talked about as much. Right. All right. So, uh, but I want you to start. Okay. So we jump around. We I do, want, yeah. Yeah. When you to decide what category we're talking about, I'm, I'm ready to go with whatever we tend to do a lot of the, the top categories. Um, and then we have uh, sort of our own little, uh, miscellaneous. Um, so yeah. we're going to start I'm with excited about my miscellaneous. It's a left field pick. Oh, all right. That's exciting. Um, we're going to start with supporting actor, supporting actor, actor. Okay. Yes. Um, and I want to make sure I, I might not have the pronunciation here, right? Okay. Um, so it's definitely not the person I have then. Okay. <laughs> um, Lil Rel Howie, Howry, pardon that, me. Lil Rel Howry is how Howry. I've been saying. Okay. Yeah. But um, I, I, I don't know that I'm any more right than you are. That's just yeah, how I've been saying it. from yeah. get out. Uh, I, I know people that actually don't care much for this character um, because he just he's just so separate tonally from what's going on, you know, and he's at a remove. But to me, the character is not really that. So first, I'm going to be talking about the character. He's not that different than Dick Halloran in The Shining. Mm-hmm. He's not that different than whatever Richard Farnsworth's character name uh, character's name is in Misery. Um in many ways, he's a, he's kind of a standard Stephen King type character. The difference being that spoilers, he doesn't show up and just get killed immediately, you know, um, or incapacitated. Uh, but he also, you know, he doesn't distract from the tone. He contributes to the tone. That's the key. You know, you have to, you need someone to hang a lantern on the sheer absurdity of what we're seeing. And uh, yeah, also, I mean, yes, He's doing that literally, but also he's crucial in the sense that we know that Chris is out of his element. Yeah. But, uh, I can't remember the character's name now. Um, Oh, the, the of, one we're talking about? Of Laurel Howery. I can't remember oh, his character's um, name. Yeah, I don't actually remember either right now. Sorry I want to say something with a T. Um, anyway, um, uh, so we know that Chris is out of his element. Laurel Howery represents his element. Yes. He's the one who tells us what Chris's normal is. Do you know what I mean? Rod, Rod Williams Rod. is the name of the character. Did not start with the Yes, team. absolutely. And, and as long, and there's a nice lifeline. Like anytime he talks to him on the phone, it's like, all right, well, at least we've got that. Mm-hmm. I remember I, it sounds strange. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, red harvest by, uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett. And in it, the main character, and it's told from first person, uh, he goes into the midst of this, insanely corrupt city and he is alone but he does work for the continental detective agency and so he calls for backup and so he does get so a couple more detectives do show up and while he is still primary like they help him out from time to time and in that moment it's like okay a lifeline and that's what rod is he -hmm. is a lifeline for our character and as long as he's around like it's going to be funny but it, it does kind of it helps us, which is why when he, when Chris no longer can talk to him, it now he is truly alone. Right. Um, we do see Rod like trying to like convince other people of what's going on, but because he is 
a humorous character and is ridiculous in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, no one will be convinced. And There's, that's why the performance is so key. He needs to be believably silly. Yeah. Uh, but he does care about his friend, of course. Yeah. Um, but you also need, you need him to be such that nobody would ever take him seriously. Um, and I think he, I think he's a vital character and I think that performance is pitch perfect. Um, I've been, as I mentioned, uh, before a lot of the people's top tens uh, our contributors, top tens are going up. A lot of them have picked get out, which means I've had to pick image, find images like promotional stills. And so I try not to repeat the same ones Uh, all the time. And so the one that I've, that I used once that every time I scroll past still makes me laugh is Rod with Allison Williams dog on his lap yes. sitting in the police station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking like a little kid in the principal's office. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it, it really is a, a wonderful performance and, and it made me, it made me laugh. He's a wonderful comic relief, uh, right down to like, you know, it's, it's such in many ways, think about like a lot of these lines, a lot of these punchlines, they're really not that clever. They're not that obvious. Not, that's not to put anything on Jordan Peele, but literally like when Chris says like, Oh yeah, she hypnotized me. He's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like he, he jumps to that immediately. And then like when he's talking about like Lakeith, uh, Stanfield, um, yeah. and he says like, Oh, well he's, you know, I think he, he, you know, whatever the situation is. And he just goes sex slave. Like it just, he just jumps to that and it's hilarious. And it always, and also, and it always surprises wrong. me. He's not wrong. Um, that's the other thing. He's not wrong about anything. Uh, and, and he winds up being a really delightful hero, uh, at the end. And I just, I love it, 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 that complex of a performance, but then supporting performances don't need to be, they need to serve a very specific function and it does. And I don't think it takes me out of the movie. I think it contributes tremendously to the film. All right. Uh, for my supporting actor pick, I'm going to kiss up to a friend of the show right here and talk about someone who doesn't get enough respect. And that's Doug Jones. Okay. Uh, for obviously for the bye bye man, of course, uh, <laughs> no, for, for the shape of water. Um, I mean, he's the best part of the bye bye man too. Uh, I would have to assume he yes. tends to be the best part of a lot of, uh, a lot of movies, um, where he plays monsters. Um, and uh, wait, did you see the bye bye man? No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, despite it being written by a notable, uh, survivor, um, oh, that's right. Uh, you mean from uh, CBS's Survivor? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, no, uh, just a quick aside, but uh, yeah, we were talking. Um, uh, I got to talk to Doug about the Bye Bye Man, and the other thing he, he mentioned that so in the movie, his character has like a CGI demon dog. Hmm. But he, and he was like, when we were shooting, I had a dog, and they put this like costume on it and i thought it looked really cool it was like the one thing he was like bummed that the dog that he that was his like scene partner essentially got like painted over by a cgi dog um doug is just always so happy to be anywhere yeah yeah um anyway but no we're not talking about the bye-bye man we're talking about um the shape of water uh in which he is um you know it's uh i guess if this were a traditional romance movie he would almost be thought of as a co-lead just by nature of being the love interest. 
Do you know what I mean? And I do know that in the screeners that the studio sent out, they pitched him as lead actor. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, yeah. um, I got one of those. I guess I didn't look at. at but that. I think it is a supporting performance. Um, uh, yeah, because really, I mean, Sally Hawkins is the clear, yes. uh, true lead there. Um, but he's uh, he. I mean, he does something. I mean, I, I, I mean, increasingly every year we talk about Andy Serkis or we talk about, you know, the, the motion capture performances. Um, uh, and I think much like Andy Serkis, Doug does things that we, that are uh, a kind of acting that we don't normally talk about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's, uh, I mean, he's creating the entire character. Yeah. Not only not being able to talk, but also not being able to look like a human, you yeah. know? And so he, he's finding ways. And then obviously the makeup, uh, team and the, the CGI additions that were done to the face get a lot of, uh, credit here as well, but he's, and I think that's the issue is I think a lot of people assume the makeup is doing the work. But yeah, but he's really, I mean, he's being very physical here. He yeah. is, uh, I mean, minor spoiler for the shape of water, not a plot spoiler, but a cool thing. Spoiler. He literally dances at one point yeah. and that is, uh, Doug Jones. I don't know if you read that story hmm. that, um, they hired a dancer to do that, that sequence and the dancer couldn't handle the costume and was like, like, <laughs> like almost passing out from like how much like liquid he was using like like how much he was sweating inside the costume and And you can get really claustrophobic in those as well right and so they ended up being like you know sorry we're you know doug knows what to do in this costume so they just taught doug the dance and nice and he's the one doing the dancing Mm -hmm. um uh and um he also is playing i think uh one of the things that can often be so scary about doug's performances and in things like uh the uh probably the first thing that i not the certainly not the first thing i saw him in but the first thing that i remember knowing that's doug jones was buffy the vampire slayer right. the episode hush um but we talked about Batman, man we talked about uh or we've talked before about like who is isn't he like the ice cream guy and uh what was that movie called legion. legion um which i never saw but uh i feel he plays a lot of scary characters mm-hmm. and the 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 asset the creature in the shape of water is scary yeah um but he never is playing a villain do you know what i mean like he's not playing it that way he's playing the character and so um when the the asset in the shape of water uh lashes out it's either because he's he's being tormented by mm-hmm. uh, Michael Shannon <laughs> um, or others, but mostly Michael Shannon um, or just out of instinct, like with poor Pandora. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, there's that no, part made me sad. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. It made me sad too, but there's no judgment. I think that, I mean, that comes down to, I mean, that's, that's who Guillermo del Toro is right. in that he doesn't judge his monsters. He loves his monsters. Um, but that's also why, Guillermo del Toro and Doug Jones make such a perfect pair is that Doug Jones plays quote unquote, mo- quote unquote monsters the, the way that Guillermo del Toro sees them, which is lovingly. And I feel like the, the, this character, the asset is, I also think that more so than really most of the characters I've seen Doug play. Um, and he has played a, a fish man before, uh-huh. uh, in, in Hellboy. 
but this is different because this character is a little bit animalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, not full, obviously, uh, but that's why, you know, when he does what he does to poor Pandora, mm-hmm. um, that's why we don't judge him. Yeah. Is because he does things in a notably non-human way. And while he, you know. And also Richard Jenkins gives us permission to not judge him. That's true. I mean, yes. We're not, we're not talking about Richard Jenkins here, but he's also great in the movie. He is. Um, but yeah, like if you look at, I mean, certainly the fawn is not very human. The pale Mm -hmm. man is not very human, but there's something about the asset who is, I think meant to be seen primarily as animalistic and over the course of the film, the humanity of the character is revealed little by Mm -hmm. little, both to Sally Hawkins and to us. And Doug needs to be able to evolve that character while also recognizing, no, that's always been there, but as he is treated more human, more of it comes out. Um, it's get and and all of it physically. You know, it's a very it's a very difficult thing what he is able to do. And I do like that with this film, he is finally I mean, some, you know, look, those that know have been fans of his for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, now he gets he got like a big write up in Rolling Stone because mm. of this film, you know. So I'm very I'm very happy for him. Um, yeah. Entertainment Weekly did a little not even a write, just a little like pictorial that 2017 was the year of Doug Jones because of. Alabama's uh, the senator Doug Jones, yes, Doug Jones, our Doug Jones, and then Twin Peaks: The Returns, Dougie Jones. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we can't spend this long on every Indeed, category. Yes. All right, let's jump to in the in the last few years. I don't think we've done cinematography, but I thought that we should add okay. it. So uh, cinematography. So I went with Elisha Christian, who shot Columbus. Um, which we've, you know, some of these, because we do the movie journal, a lot of this is stuff that we will have likely said before. Yeah. Um, and recently in this case, cause I only yeah, just saw right. a couple um, movie journals ago and Columbus is just shot in such a, there's so much about the film that I absolutely adore. Um, and the way that it is shot, there's a, it's very deliberate. One could say it's a little bit cold and there's a certain distance to it, but I think it also is surreal and dreamy and it really just uh, captures like these characters at this strange transitional time in their lives when they're striving for some kind, trying to figure out some kind of stability or what their future is going to look like. And so they look at these gorgeous bits of architecture and the camera seems, I say distant, That's that implies emotional distance, but it does seem to be, the camera seems almost curious about them, if that makes any sense at all. Um, like the camera is not actually tilting its head, but at times <laughs> it seems like it, like it could. Um, and it's, so it's not necessarily an active part, but it is still there with them capturing their emotion. Now I recognize that's what camera work is, but it's hard to explain. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I like you used of the word surreal because you can't have surrealism without realism. And I think one of the mm-hmm. things that, struck me about Columbus uh, and that wasn't what I was expecting. And I talked about this uh, uh, almost verbatim on the movie journal. Uh, But these modernist structures aren't shot in such a way as to make them feel alien or out of like, they feel you really do get a sense of Columbus, Indiana, the town. Yeah. And that these things have, these buildings have grown to have a place. 
uh, or that maybe the town has grown to accept them or whatever. They're a part of the town, but they're also these masterpieces hiding in plain sight. And so yeah. he sees them, uh, um, Sorry, it's a he or a she? The uh, Elisha? I'm not actually sure. I think of Elisha Cook Jr., That's true, yeah. which is a he. Yeah. Um, but then there's Alicia Cuthbert. Yeah, so I, I guess don't know. It depends on the pronunciation. Um, so anyway, the the camera sees them um, both as real and unreal at the same time, in a way. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that familiar and alien that Haley Richardson's. Richardson's character lives in this town, so she's familiar with this. And John Cho's character is not familiar with these, but he knows architecture. So they are familiar in their own way with this world. Um, and uh, But we're not. And so it kind of has to be at this constant push and pull visually. And of course, I think the compositions are beautiful as far as like where the characters mm-hmm. are placed uh, in the frame and that sort of thing. I think it's just a really gorgeous film on so many levels. I'm going to pick for cinematography, uh, the work of Andrew Droz Palermo who okay. shot a ghost story. Oh, okay. Um, which, uh, Palermo's history. If you look at his IMDb is in horror. Um, and a ghost story, despite the name is not a horror movie, but is also, uh, not framed unlike a horror movie at times, mm-hmm. the way that, uh, he, uh, you know, depending on the needs of a certain shot or scene, the way that he brings the ghost to the forefront or keeps him hidden, not hidden, but sort of sidelined almost. Okay. Um, because, you know, you haven't seen a ghost story yet. I've not. Right? Yet. No, not okay. Yet. So, um, I mean, basically the world is, you know, Casey Affleck dies, he becomes a ghost. And then the point of the movie is that the world keeps going. Mm-hmm. And so at some points it just, you know, he'll turn around and years have passed. And so it, it, at some points he fades into the background and becomes more ghostly. I mean, he doesn't become transparent. Part of the, part of the conceit of the movie is that it's just Casey Affleck under a sheet. Right. <laughs> um, uh, although apparently wearing a, a little helmet, um, thing to make the top of the ghost the sheet rounded, sure. which I what I would I would pay for a <laughs> shot of just Casey Affleck just wearing the little helmet <laughs> without the sheet on. It must it must exist somewhere. Probably. Um, anyway, uh, uh, it's also um, shot in one three three, which I think is is well used. I think that's one of the upsides of um, I think. Uh, digital filmmaking and we're, you know, we're almost entirely digital now is that people are generally free to pick whatever aspect ratio they want to shoot yeah. in. Yeah. It doesn't have to be as, as big a, de, uh, a decision or a commitment. Um, uh, and, um, so that's why I, we've definitely seen a lot more, um, experimental or, or just throwback aspect ratios in the past five years or so of yeah. movies. I think about like, um, what was, uh, the Wuthering Heights movie was also in one, three, three. Um, there's another movie this year called most beautiful Island. That was really good. That was in one, six, six. Um, it's, I, I like seeing these sort of old aspect ratios come back. Um, a ghost story goes one farther by also having rounded corners. Yeah. Um, which I, which I like a lot. Um, uh, but, uh, it also has my favorite type of lighting, which is the, uh, 
Twilight type of light. And I don't mean Twilight, the movie Twilight, because I've never seen that. What I'm talking about is a word that I use often in reviews, but feel stupid saying out loud. But crepuscular is the word for the light at Twilight. Um, uh, and it has that look and a certain haziness um, mm. that I, uh, I really love. So, yeah, uh, that's my pick. All right. Uh, we're going to jump to lead actress. Lead now. Actress. Okay. Uh, so with all the uh, press that Holly Hunter got for The Big Sick, although surprisingly not an Oscar nomination for supporting actress, um, there's a, a smaller film called Strange Weather um, that she was in hmm. that is a really fascinating film. And, you know, in certain ways kind of similar to uh, Three Billboards as far as story. Um, she plays a, a woman who uh, whose son has killed himself, and then she discovers that, not that it was murder, but that uh, you know her son was a very unstable person and that somebody might have pushed him over the edge on purpose. Mm. Um, and so she goes to, to investigate, uh, and along the way is questioning her her own responsibility in this. Um, and the character is this very interesting type of, uh, Southern hippie, um, very free spirited as Holly Hunter can play very well. Um, but Southern and thus insert stereotypically kind of grounded, like drives a truck, wears a cowboy hat, all that sort of thing. Um, but there are, there are really wonderful scenes in which she's, you know, talking with, uh, it's, it's kind of a road picture. Um, and she eventually winds up confronting the person that she wants to confront. And that scene, the actor also does a great job, but, uh, in that scene, there's, she's just called upon to do such drastically different things because she has to go from blaming him to blaming herself to not knowing who to blame, because maybe that's, it's just, too easy to blame someone like things mm-hmm. like this just don't really work that way. And so just to see her go f- from one extreme to another, as she just tries to make sense of something that doesn't make sense is incredibly powerful. And there are moments uh, in the film that are, you know, um, you and I've talked about Manchester by the sea and mm-hmm. we've talked about the most harrowing image in the film. Yeah. There's a, there's a moment like that in strange okay. weather that is very, Jarring and really, and I mean, it just the theater that I saw it in, like, there were gasps when that happened. Um, and it's uh, it's just a really solid performance. And there is there's a scene where there are moments, uh, it's difficult. There's a scene where I could see the strings to go back to a, a term we've used before, mm-hmm. where I can see Holly Hunter, the actress acting on an instinct and the director wisely left, uh, unwisely left it in. Um, right. Because it didn't a hundred percent fit with the character or the situation, but clearly, you know, actors sometimes just feel something and they go with it and that's all well and good, but it doesn't mean the director has to include it. And, um, so I don't actually blame Holly Hunter for that. She's just going where she needs to go emotionally. But beyond that, um, I think it's just a really lived in solid performance. And, uh, and I think the, the film might be on Netflix. Don't quote me on that, but it's, it's worth seeking out. It's not a great film, but she's, she's great in it. 
All right. Uh, my pick for best lead actress, I'm going to go with Kim Min-hee from On the Beach at Night Alone. Okay. Now, when I saw this at LA Film Fest, the person introduced it as saying Kim Min-hee plays two different characters. Um, and the movie is surreal enough uh, and Bunuel inspired enough because um, he obviously did that um, mm-hmm. or did things like that, like having two actresses play the same character in that obscure object of desire. Um, I don't think that's the case. I I guess you know those interpretations are up to anyone, but the reason I don't think that ca- that is the case is because I see the same character in the two very different stories. The there's uh, the movie split into two. It's not halves because I think the second half or second story is much longer. Um, at least it feels that way. I'm not. Uh, I couldn't tell you. Um, but in the first half, a woman is uh, a Korean woman is um, visiting uh, a friend in Germany. Um, and they're just hanging out in Germany. And the second half, she's uh, Kim and he plays a woman. I think it's the same woman <laughs> um, uh, who's back in in Korea, um, but in uh, the uh, a small town, see, staying with friends. She is implied that she hasn't seen in a while because mm-hmm. the premise of the movie that gets slowly teased out is that this that Kim and he is playing a famous actress who had an affair with her director, and it was a scandal. And so she's sort of like retreating from her glamorous life or whatever. She's hiding out in Germany or she's hiding out with friends who knew her before she was famous or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it, what's, what's great about, it, I think the performance is that we, um, that she's, we see her as, as, you know, very vulnerable and wounded by this thing that's happened. But we also Kim and he also lets us see how this character is maybe a little self-centered and impulsive and maybe has made bad decisions in her life. Um, now that she's entirely to blame for having an affair with her married director, you know, takes two and everything, but, uh, sort of doesn't, you know, she doesn't, uh, ask, she doesn't make a martyr of the character, I think mm-hmm. is what's, what's really important and also maintains this realism, even when it's frustrating, even when we see how, um, she can be again, self-centered or maybe like not reading clues, um, from her friends. Um, uh, and also maintaining the character while the movie gets increasingly surreal. It just has very strange, uh, things happen. There's a, there's a character in the movie who shows up in the only character besides Kim and he, who shows up in both stories who may or may not actually exist. Hmm. Um, uh, and that stuff gets very funny, um, but also very, uh, threatening at the same time. And Kim and he just has such a, a grasp on, on this character that she, uh, keeps the, she keeps the boat level the entire time. All right. Uh, next we're going to jump to screenplay. Now this is not original screenplay and adapted screenplay. It can be either one, just any kind of, uh, screenplay that just really stuck out to us. Uh, and mine, I talked about the film fairly recently, but I do love this script. It's, uh, all right, get ready for some pronunciation issues. Uh, Ethimus Philippou, Philippou, and Yorgos Lanthimos who wrote, uh, the killing of a sacred deer. All right. Um, I apologize. Uh, uh, Greeks get me. Um, 
but uh, I do. I, I adore this script. I think structurally it's fascinating. It is uh, inspired by an old, I believe, an old Greek legend that they actually oh. reference in the script. Um, oh. uh, a character, the 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 teenage teenage girl, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, I think a teacher says that. Uh, oh, her report on such and such a oh. legend is is really good, and uh, sure enough, it was. It's a story not unlike this. Um, And so, but I think they do a a really great job of kind of approximating reality, but this is not necessarily the reality we live in. Like none of the characters really seem to act the way a person does on the surface, but not unlike Wes Anderson when he is at his best, there can be all this affect but there really is a, a human core. Uh, and I feel like that really, certainly in the first half, that's how it is. But then because of what is at stake, the human core starts to come out and you actually see that the way, the way the characters talk and what they choose to say changes. Um, and it's, it's almost imperceptible. Like you're, you find yourself right in the middle of this emotional situation and this stylistic change. You're right in the middle of it before you realize like, Oh, this is, this bears very little resemblance to the first half of the film as far as how people are talking. Hmm. Um, and then in the midst of all that, it's, you know, there's a real tragic element to it. And, and, but it also, you know, this is more, maybe more of a directorial thing, but it's horrific in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a fatalistic quality to it and it's funny Yeah, <laughs> on top of everything else. Um, and that they are able to just juggle all of these different tones in that script. I mean, again, there's a directorial quality to it as well and performance quality to it. But I think at its core is a, a brilliant script and, you know, they knew from, the word go like this is where we need to end up this is where we start and it's there's just such there's this march of inevitability to all of the events that uh, that i think starts at the script level and i absolutely love it all right uh, i loved it too um but we got to keep things moving yeah uh this one uh, I, I i couldn't go clever with this one i'm gonna have to go with what i really think is i think the best screenplay of the year and that's paul thomas anderson's phantom thread okay um because uh i think it's and maybe someone you know people who are professional screenwriters or have taken all sorts of classes or like you know our friend pilar Mm -hmm. uh maybe this won't be as as impressive to them but uh i i do like when a movie finds structure and pacing from somewhere other than plot yeah because phantom thread is not really a plot-based movie um and yet it's um, all right, to make a highfalutin analogy, like one of the dresses that he makes, it's both meticulously structured and soft and malleable at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can feel, even though the, uh, the reveal of what we're building towards in the movie doesn't actually really come out till pretty far into the movie mm-hmm. you can feel that it is building to something without any obvious anvils or lantern hanging to use terms that we yeah. <laughs> that we that we use here um and it it, it 
it brings you in so gently i'm uh, I'm thinking of uh the uh, elaine bennis's analogy of trying to uh you know rope in a guy she's interested without scaring him off like he's a little squirrel and she's trying to get him to come (laughs) over without any making big sudden (laughs) movements um and the phantom thread is a movie that eventually takes us to someplace very perverse without ever feeling like it's dragging us there do you know what i mean yes it the the movie guides us in into this and i think it's because it's so uh beautifully laid out and and structured and and knows to have sort of um uh you know it has beautifully wordless moments like the um the i guess the 1950s precursor to like a runway show that's inside the house you know know that sequence which i love or it has big things like um um the 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 big uh uh dinner for two uh argument which is yeah. um uh the the first truly like emotional moment of the movie and also one of the funniest yes uh, <laughs> i remember i watched that scene i was like is this how i sound when i'm when i'm talking about food and the way i like it <laughs> but you've never accused someone of being there to ruin your evening and possibly your entire life. I've never accused you of you're... that. <laughs> All right. Um, what's next? Uh, one thing I will say actually real quick. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. The scripts that we both picked, cause I think tonally they're not dissimilar. Um, like there's just like, there's this very deliberate pace, mm-hmm. uh, and people who are kind of very set in their own right, yeah. way of, of yeah. existing and then something shakes it up and they're both weirdly funny. Yes, very <laughs> much so. All right. We're going to jump to lead actor. All right. Okay. So here's a film that no one saw and it's a bummer cause it's great. The film is called Menash, and right. the actor's name is Menash Lustig. Um, who, from what I hear, uh, you'd think I would look into it, but I haven't, um, is, uh, something of a YouTube personality oh. and, uh, and is, a uh, comedically inclined and you get some of that in the performance. It is, he's this guy, he's a, a single father in an Orthodox Jewish community in New York. Uh, his wife has passed away and he is very well-meaning and clearly loves his son, but is not the most competent person in the world and is often extremely frustrating to watch. <laughs> like you can see the mistakes he's going to make as he is making them and he doesn't know it. And you're like, damn it, come on, stop doing that. Uh, but it is a, it's a completely human character his mistakes are 100% human I can relate to them because I'm not super great with logistics and organization and that's very much his thing but he but he's likable and you want to like him you're rooting for him even when he is exasperating like that's that's a good way to describe the characters he's exasperating and the actor really seems to understand how to play this character that he needs to be comical at times. Um, because you're just like, I-, I cannot believe that you have made this mistake again. Um, but, uh, but with a real 
tragic quality as well. I think I've, I've said that a couple times now. It seems to be something that I'm leaning towards these days. Um, comical, but tragic. Mm-hmm. Or tragic but comical. You know, that's the neat thing about this character is you're not exactly sure where he's leading from. Uh, except that where he's leading from is that he means well. And that can lead to either or both of those outcomes. It can be tragic or very funny. Um, and that he's able to keep all of that inside this character and not overplay him, but have him be 100% believable. Uh, you know, have him seem like somebody that you could see on the street um, is is really remarkable. It's it's. Uh, I'll go ahead and say that when I made my submissions to the BPs, he was my number one lead oh. actor. It is... It's a film that I'm going to, by the way, be talking about in a few weeks because right. it is very firmly in my top ten. Uh, but it's and I don't know what the situation is. Uh, I mean, it did get theatrical distribution. Yeah. I don't know if it's available to rent now, but I highly recommend it. It's just because on top of everything else, it's. I'll, I guess I'll say more about this in a few weeks. But uh, okay. uh, it, it also just gives us a, a snapshot of a world that many of us yeah. are never going to see. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have the screener. Uh, maybe oh, I'll, really? Oh, okay. I'll move it up to the top, it of the top of the stack. Um, all right. Best actor. Okay. Uh, I feel like, as I've said as long, and we, you and I have both said as long as we've been doing this podcast and before it, people don't get enough credit for comedic roles. Uh, this year is uh, testing that theory with uh, Tiffany Haddish getting a lot of sure. uh, attention, uh, deservedly. But this is the best lead actor category, so I am going to single out Channing Tatum for Logan Lucky. Okay. Um, because he's in this, you know, sort of madcap movie. He's very funny, but he's also kind of the closest thing to a straight man because everyone else is even weirder yeah. than him, but he still has plenty of, uh, uh, plenty of jokey lines, mostly in his scenes with Adam driver. I think and I would say Adam driver actually plays it more straight, but he's not <laughs> the straight man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what is he say? like? I was, oh, this is in the trailer. It's like, I was let go for liability reason <laughs> about getting fired. Um, uh, yeah, he has a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of funny jokes, but he also is, you know, very much playing. And this is, I don't want to talk too much about Logan Lucky um, as a movie. Cause we're supposed to talk about the performance, but this ties in, I think, um, for as much as you could see these characters as uh, a bunch of hicks and rubes or right. whatever, I actually think the movie has a lot of compassion, as I think is evidenced by that um, beauty pageant scene that we talked about um, uh, in the last movie journal. Um, and uh, I think the Steven Soderbergh and Channing Tatum take... Uh, um, whatever is it jimmy logan whatever logan i think it's jimmy logan right. uh they take his plight very seriously and they take his love for his daughter very seriously and um his uh you know his his frustration um uh, with with work very seriously you know because he uh he does i mean as much as that's a funny line for liability reasons yeah. um he does lose his job for a total bullshit reason that isn't his fault. Yes. And he takes it, uh, pretty well, mm. or at least stoically, I guess. But we, I think 
in in small ways we see how much it's affected him and how much it leads directly to what the movie ends up being uh being about you know and i and i think this uh this core of caring about his family be it his uh brother or his daughter um or even to some extent his ex-wife i love that katie holmes is not playing like some shrew or whatever she's like a real person but we're not talking about katie holmes but um uh, I guess in a in a in a shittier, lazier movie, though, um, he would be so annoyed or frustrated by his ex-wife, or she'd be such a caricature that we'd wonder why. How were they ever married? Yeah, but they those two together play it like they seem like a former married yeah. couple um, who were raising a daughter together. Um, and then, uh, the underrated David Denham, uh, uh, yeah. uh gets a lot of the, <laughs> he, he gets mocked. If anyone, if anyone deserves like the criticism that Logan Lucky makes fun of Southerners, it's the character that David Denham plays. And yet it's not full on condemnation for him either. Like he is still involved in their lives and he is still a, a loving person. Yeah. Like he also, you know, he's essentially like the, the, dorky stepfather but he does care about the kid as well but has different methods of raising yes (laughs) as his kid not not the daughter says about the rihanna song it's not really about an umbrella rihanna's singing about her vagina it's a metaphor and jenny tatum's like who told you that everyone (laughs) uh anyway uh, i really love that movie and i love the performance uh, all right, so next let's do our miscellaneous oh, okay. category. Oh, then we're going to end up talking about Logan Lucky, two movies in a row. All right, so uh, a film that I predict I'm going to be talking about in our Through the Cracks oh. episode, um, maybe not, we'll see, is uh, Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness, um, a film that is far from perfect. I think it has deep flaws, but... That is probably at a script level. Everything technical is, I would venture to say, perfect. Including, and maybe especially, Benjamin Walfish's haunting, beautiful score. Um, He's having a good year, this Walfish guy. What else did he do? Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. That's Uh, great. Okay. Like, he... uh, I'm trying to remember the score, but yeah, Blade Runner's fantastic yeah i mean he uh, he does it with han zimmer um but yeah like he's uh between it and blade runner like uh, he's doing some high profile stuff but a cure for wellness is it's a it's a hammer film basically mm. um in in a lot of ways it's it's very gothic uh, somebody, some critic, I don't remember described it as like, it was a grand guignol or something like that. And I could see it, mm-hmm. um, as those hammer movies tended to be sometimes. Um, and with something like that to set the mood, you need a very specific type of score that is, you know, there's a, there's a bit of Danny Elfman in there. Like, you know, you have like a lot of high pitched singers just like doing these tones but it also just feels like you could take this score and plug it into the midst of like an old timey haunted house movie and it would work. Um, and it just, it helps to, it does what I think a lot of good scores do, which is it looks at the movie and it allows the tone of the film to influence it. And then it then influences the tone. Like it's this thing where it is absolutely, 
vital to what is happening, which scores should be, but then there are some scores that who get, who cares? They're about as generic as can be. This is not one of those. Um, it is beautiful and frightening and light and intimidating. It's all of these things that the film is, um, and it's entirely possible the film is those things in no small part because of the score. Um, it is a it is a score that I downloaded uh, and have listened to regularly when I'm in a very specific mood. <laughs> uh, it's not a uh, it's not a one thirty p.m. walking across campus. It is a I'm driving around at midnight type of type of score, and I'm feeling particularly melancholy. All right. Well, my miscellaneous pick is also musical. Uh, and it is not tied to any one film. My, uh, the, the person I want to honor is, uh, not even with us anymore. The late, great John Denver, All right. who had a hell of a year. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, because take me home. Country roads was the hi- emotional highlight of Logan lucky. And one of the but, emotional highlights of the year, honestly. Um, well, uh, uh, the song Annie's song was used, um, beautifully and, ironically in both free fire and Okja um, mm. for an Okja. It was a slow motion chase. It was, did you, did you see Okja? I did not. The, the, the whole, the long escape chase rescue sequence is so great. And the culmination of it is a slow, this big, you know, Okja, um, uh, super pig thing yeah. rampaging through an underground mall in slow motion. Um, uh, uh, while, um, it's, potential captors are trying to shoot it with a uh, tranquilizer darts and it's to the tune of Annie's song, hmm. which was also used in a not literal slow motion, but essentially a slow motion uh, scene in free fire where um, the actor, uh, I forget his name. Um, he was the older brother in uh, sing street, which I didn't say. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, he's trying to get away he's been shot like everybody and he turns on the van to try and get away out of this warehouse where everyone's been shooting each other for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And so he's very slowly driving around this warehouse. When he turns on the van, the eight track starts playing. It's playing any song. People are shooting at him. He's getting shot and shooting back and very slowly trying to get out while free fire plays. Um, and then it's also my understanding that John Denver fi- uh, figured heavily in both alien covenant and, Kingsman two. Um, hmm. so I don't remember, I don't remember it in alien covenant, but that might be because I just tried to shut that movie out of my brain. <laughs> um, and then I actually didn't see Kingsman two. Uh, yeah, but, um, uh, I don't know. Are there more that I'm missing? Uh, I feel like I got all the John Denver's from 2017, but, um, well, I, the one that I know definitively is, is Logan lucky. Yeah. And it's just such a, and yeah, he's, he's not a, a musician that I honestly think about. And then I hear, a song of his that I'm familiar with. I was like, this is great. Yeah. And take me home. Country road is a really, really good emotional song. And like just such a, okay. This is probably going to sound mean. Who who thinks about West Virginia? Nobody. I know that's Um, strange. Unless you're from there. You kind of forget about West Virginia. I think. And the fact that it's this wonderful song that is like a tribute to it. And, and I've been to West Virginia, like West Virginia University, like invited me to come and oh, talk right. about, on a panel. I've driven through West Virginia. Yeah. It's, I've never stopped. I don't think. Why would you? 
Uh, you know? I don't want to mock it. I mean, it's, it was beautiful, beautiful country. But yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it was it was quite nice. When I say why would you, I mean it's just like there's nothing there's nothing like touristy that it's not necessarily a destination, but it's a place that people live, and that's really what you get from from that song. And just you know, it's for many people, it's home, and home is this really wonderful, comforting place. And you know, I guess that's is John Denver from. West Virginia. I, I don't like, think he I, is. I think, um, I think in the, uh, at the beginning of Logan Lucky, when he, when Channing Tatum told the story of the song to his daughter, doesn't he say at that point, John Denver had never even been to West Virginia. Yeah, that's kind of awesome. Um, yeah, it's de- definitely the best year John Denver has had since the year that final destination came out because Rocky mountain high. Oh yes. Like okay. predicts people dying in final destination. That's right. In the first, I, I don't think they kept that up. I only saw the first three final destination movies. Wow. That was, <laughs> that's not the number I expected you to they say. They made five of them. I know. I saw three. That uh, last one, of course, being five null destination. Five null destination. Uh-huh. Or as our friend, uh, Quinn, rest in peace, called it five null goes west. <laughs> uh. Oh, Quinn. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to j- jump to supporting actress. Okay. Uh, towards the top of my list of submissions, though not necessarily my number one, which was nominated, which is Kirsten Dunst in The Beguiled, I have uh, uh, Ana de Armas for Blade Runner 2049, okay. who plays the character of Joy. Oh, First off, what a wonderful character. And what a difficult performance. Because the character is a computer program, who has feelings, I think they certainly seem real enough. Yeah. And it's just so, uh, huh, that's weird. Oh, Siri, uh, or Siri. I don't remember how you say it. I thought I was talking to her in my phone. Oh, Um, the other, I felt so bad the other night. Uh, I must've accidentally hit the thing and Siri was like, yes. And like made like little noise that Siri makes, you know? Mm. And I was like, Siri, I'm not fucking talking to you. And she said, there's no need for that talk like that, David. (laughs) I felt so bad. Jen swore at her a while ago and that, and that happens like, Hey, that's fun. Um, another fun thing, by the way, is, uh, ask, I, I might've talked about it, uh, uh, ask her about the plots of movies that involve robots, uh-huh. any robot. <laughs> okay. Like if you ask, uh, you know, what is the plot of alien? Uh-huh. And it will say like, uh, the story of a bold, uh, of a noble science officer who just won't, and nobody will let him do his job. <laughs> so it's pretty good. Anyway. Um, but, uh, so in talking about, um, this character, the character Joy, and the role that she plays, there's a, a real sadness, and and she's kind of the only character that provides any real hope for our lead, and kind of for us. Uh, in true Blade Runner fashion, she's kind of the most human character as yeah. far as her emotions. That's I mean that's definitely the the thing the you know the the sequelness of it of like one upping the thing right yeah. whereas like uh in Blade Runner the idea was the replicants especially like Rudger Hauer yeah and um Sean Young were like you know more human than the humans yeah but here you've got another step removed yeah. you've got have an actual physical form yeah you've the, the AI program uh owned and operated by a replicant yeah is the most human character in the movie and 
you know, and of course there's that wonderful scene where a woman comes in to sort of be her physical form. I mean, that's Mackenzie Davis. Yeah, yeah. It's that part's beautiful. And then what eventually happens to joy is, is so sad. And so, I mean, it, it, like my heart just absolutely sank and I felt like someone that I knew mm. was gone. Um, and that's, and the fact of how, you know, spoilers, everybody for Blade Runner. Sorry. Um, the fact that joy dies, but the way in which she dies, she just gets blinked out of existence. Mm-hmm. Like there's not even a, a, a body left or right. anything like yeah. that. And it's a reminder of what she always was and what, what this program might be, you know? So that's the thing is she has to be human, but she can't, but she also has to seem a bit childlike because as a program, she's learning as she goes it's, it requires such complexity. And honestly, as people were talking about Blade Runner and honestly, I don't think I said much about her in my review, but when I think of that film, I think of a lot of things, but her character really stands out to me. Uh, so some of that is the writing and some of that is just, I think a a flawless performance. Uh, all right. Um, I am going to pay, even though she did get the BP nomination, you did mention her. I'm going to have to go ahead and go with Kirsten Dunst for the beguiled. She's pretty great. She's great. And also just in, uh, this is for the beguiled, which is a fantastic movie, but in, in general, I feel like starting with hidden figures last year, um, and I didn't watch the Fargo season she was on, but, um, Kirsten Dunst, I think his represented for so long in movies has represented youth mm-hmm. going fr- from interview with the vampire all the way, even through like melancholia where she's, a, a, a an adult. It's sort of like, it's, you know, it's married, you know, she's getting married. It's sort of about like the sort of last ritual of yeah. being a young person before you become an old person. And now she's playing, uh, you know, an adult woman. She's playing her age, which is, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, Kirsten Dunst is probably older than I, older than we are or close. Probably right around. I'd say late thirties, late thirties, maybe 40, 41. Um, I'm looking it up uh, now. Uh, and, uh, I don't know what it says about Kirsten Dunst or what it says about our, our idea of, uh, uh, of womanhood, but these two roles, hidden figures in the big Isle, um, she's playing, very a very unhappy woman. How yeah. old is she? She's thirty five. Oh, she, she is, is my she age. Is our age. Yes. Um, uh, the hidden figures character is, I think, in denial about her sure. <laughs> unhappiness. Um, uh, here, she's playing a sort of unhappiness that has, I think, f- at the movie's beginning, has sort of found the way that you know water finds its own form and whatever is holding it. Mm-hmm. Her unhappiness has found its pragmatic, pragmatic level. She's dealing with it. Yeah. And then, um, uh, uh, Colonel McBurney or is it just Bernie McBurney 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 shows yeah. up and, uh, in a way he does the worst thing that could possibly happen to her at that point is he gives her hope again. Yeah. And it, um, ends up being kind of her, uh, undoing. And I think, you know, there's a version of this movie made and there's a version of this character to be played where she's, um, maybe a, a little bit villainous and definitely, you know, more, uh, pitiable, but yeah. Um, Sophia Coppola doesn't 
let any of her main cast uh, become types or at yeah. all. Like, um, except for obviously the slave woman that she cut out, she didn't deal with that at all. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, she, this uh, it's it's a it yeah it's it's one of my my favorite performances of the year much like it is yours um partially because of how painful it is and just how how unselfconscious it is like she is willing to be because so i'm going to say this because this is the nature of the character mm-hmm. is that like She's not as young as she used to be. She doesn't look as quote unquote good as she used to when she was younger. Um, and, and it feels like I won't say auto, it might not be autobiographical at all, but it feels like it is like, uh, she's a woman who is transitioning into being older and alone. And, and you never know, like it just felt, it feels so vulnerable. It feels so, uh, so open that it's odd that like my mind goes to like, well, it must be autobiographical. It's like, or maybe she's just a really good performance and she just locks into this character. Um, in fact, it's probably that, uh, I mean, do, she's done all her best work with Sofia Coppola, I think. Do you think you and I being, uh, Kirsten Dunst's age. Do you think we're particularly affected by this performance because it reflects where we are in terms of like realizing we're 35, realizing we're not young people anymore? Because I did have, when I, when I first saw the cast of the beguiled and I saw that Kirsten Dunst was playing a teacher yeah, at a girl's school, I was like, I was like, shit, I'm old now. Well, I am a teacher yeah. at the moment. And, uh, when I look at like all of these and I'm teaching these, L Fanning uh, level <laughs> right. uh, students. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't say it bothers me that much because obviously I, say I bothers, but yeah, like, I mean, you, like I've found love and she hasn't, but, uh, <laughs> you know. but do you sympathize or empathize? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, um, that's why I think her character, I, I think Nicole Kidman is, is great as well, but I think e- each of these women uh, are in a different place in their life. And I think the reason that, Kirsten Dunst, maybe it resonates with me because of where I am, but I feel like she is in this state of transition, um, which is why she so badly, why she is so excited at this, at the hope that comes in. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, sorry, we can we can move on last. Oh, I was going to say one other thing okay. about the, uh, not about the Beguiled, but just about getting older. I remember, and I think I might have said this before back when we did, we talked about WonderCon last year. I went to the Riverdale panel, and I was like, oh, yeah. the only actors I know are the parents. Yeah. I know, I know Machinamek and Luke Perry as the parents on this show. Well, and so Jen has been watching Riverdale, and uh, and I was looking at the guy who plays Jughead, and I was like, he looks familiar. Who's that? Oh, it's Cole Sprouse, uh-huh. who's the kid from Big Daddy. Oh, is he? Yeah. Wow. Sounds like, oh, geez. All right. Uh, it's kind of old. I feel old. <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, so last is director. That's um, all we have left? Yep. Oh, yeah. We knocked this out. Yeah. So I am picking James Gray, who made The Lost City of Z. Fun fact, when I was typing that into my phone, it thought I meant the lost city of A. 
Couldn't be further. <laughs> Literally. You, I guess you could have had it be, it could have been a one, but you really, anyway. Um, so, uh, have you seen Lost City of, of Oh, yeah. Z- okay. Of Zed is how That's, I like to say it. Yeah. That's how they say it in the movie. Right. Yeah, but he has said Z, so I'm okay the with James, that. The James Gray has. Yeah. Okay. And the way I see it is like, if I were British, I'd probably say Z, but I'm not, so I'm going to do what I want. Okay. Um, don't tread on me, David. Um, <laughs> so, I think this this film is just so self assured, and it's it's it just has such a clear idea of what it wants to be, and it is unapologetically that thing. There are moments of adventure. There are moments of drama, but it doesn't steer into any one thing because it is just the story of a man's life and his obsession. One could say his understandable obsession. Um, I feel like a lesser filmmaker would have tried to to approach this from an angle. Uh, it could be the angle of adventure or, uh, you know, exploration or tragedy um, and I think he realizes that it's all of that. And in doing so, he's locking into the emotional state of the lead character played, I think, very well by Charlie Hunnam. Um, and this is a guy who is often exhilarated by what he is, what he is exploring. Um, but he also realizes he needs to be cautious at times. Uh, he also realizes and this is kind of a standard thing for any biopic that he is neglecting his family back home. But there is such a, such a a beautiful moment of emotional triumph when he goes back out with his son played by Tom Holland and that James Gray realizes that even, even at the end of the film, when things are not going to go well for our main character and he is about to be lost Forever, much like the city of Zed, not unlike it. Yes, um, <laughs> I'm talking, David. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a really emotional moment, and it would be very easy to judge the people that are killing our main character, and it'd be very easy to judge him for being so naive as to feel that he can just walk in here and be, and everyone will be fine with him. Um, it would be easy to look at them as savages who just do not like these white people and they're just going to kill them without even finding out their intentions. All of that would be easy but it would also be easy to just steer completely away from that and treat these quote unquote savages as they're referred to as noble mm. and be like, right. Be like, Oh, they're so pure. It's like, well, they are killing the lead, not thrilled with that. And like, that is the thing is he's always, I feel like he's always striving to find what's real. And what's real is that, people are flawed. They neglect the people they love. Sometimes they don't get what they want. Sometimes they do. Um, people of all cultures can be noble. They can be disappointing. Um, so it's all of that emotionally in the midst of a shockingly intimate, uh, intimate epic, 
You know what I mean? Because like mm-hmm. when you think of the scale of the film, I mean it's it is very large, but it all it is always at a human scale as well, which I which I really love. Um, you know, it would have been. Uh, believe me, this is not, I'm not saying this negatively. It would have been easy to try to approach this as a David Lean film, uh, or what we have in mind as a David Lean film, which is like big and grand, but he doesn't, he approaches it like the, like David Lean actually does, which is like, if you look at something like Lawrence of Arabia, yes, there are these big epic set pieces, but at the core of it is this kind of unknowable person. And I think Lost City of Z reminds me of that. Um, an epic on a very human scale and at that and on that scale is a lot of complexity and a refusal to give easy answers or steer into one particular genre or another. I think it's a real achievement. Well, speaking of humanity and human scale and everything, my pick for best director uh, is going to be Sean Baker for The Florida Project. Okay. Um, BP nominated. BP nominated Sean Baker. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and Sean Baker hates, uh, apparently, and rightfully so, when people refer to people like Brooklyn Prince or Brie of Innate as quote unquote non actors. Sure. They're in his movies. They're acting. Yeah. They're actors. Um, I agree with him. I'm glad that he uh, um, respects them as actors. Uh, but they are first time actors. Yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the first time actors in this movie are all so good. And so, uh, in the, in their character. And so, um, you know, like we talked, when we talked about pre uh, on an episode, maybe it was off mic. I can't remember. Yeah. We talked about her, um, holding her own with Willem Dafoe. You know, mm-hmm. I think when a cast is that, is that consistently good, uh, you kind of had to chalk it up have to chalk it up to, to the director. I think, um, I think that's something that maybe, uh, certain cinephiles. So, uh, entrenched in the auteur theory, which I am an auteurist myself, um, have forgotten what a director does. I think to, to some extent, like I think sometimes people, when they think of like what's good direction, they're thinking first and foremost about the visual presentation, sure. which is, is part of it, you know? Um, but going back to the theater and the early pre autorist days of, uh, of, of filmmaking, the main thing the director did was direct the actors. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, uh, you know, can only, th- only think of a couple movies in 2017, in which the director clearly cared so much about uh, his or her cast. I mean, I, I think it's true in The Beguiled. I think it's true in Phantom Thread. Uh, definitely The Shape of Water. But uh, this one, um, w- with its w- with its cast of uh, first-time actors, um, I, I think there's an incredible level of compassion for those particular people um, that Sean Baker shows and for the people they represent as well, the, the characters and the real life counterparts and, uh, to get into the visual style of the film. Um, the fact that he finds so much beauty, like nonstop, this movie, I think it is so beautiful in a place that if you and I, you and I would drive by without, thinking about do you know what i mean if if we were visiting uh the magic kingdom you know disney world uh although jen can attest to this uh 
I want to stay at every hotel and motel that exists. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's a thing that happens every time we drive by, even if it's like, there's nothing to recommend that motel as you're driving by. But I often feel like, I wonder what it would be like to stay there for a night. I think I would like to. I'm not. Yeah. But I would like to. So, but that's a weird quirk of mine. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. Plus that place uh, has bed bugs, as we learned. Um, that's true. That would scare <laughs> me away. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, I think uh, you wisely derailed my train of thought because we should, we should wrap up. But um yeah, uh, I think the Florida, Florida Project is, is the most um, compassionate movie of 2017, and I think that comes from Sean Baker's approach to filmmaking, to actors, and to life in general. Yeah, and I think, yeah, because the director, and along, uh, along with the editor, I think is responsible for creating an atmosphere, and that mm-hmm. is a very specific atmosphere. Um and I think that's when actors, you know, or first time actors can excel is if you create a very specific atmosphere of probably some experimentation within scenes, but also just a real sense of community, which is absolutely what should be created in that film. Um, and it's worth noting that in talking about the other movies in which, you know, the directors really care about their actors and about the characters they're all period pieces and they're all, they're all specific genres. This right. is, takes place in modern day. It's no particular genre. Yeah. Um, which may, which might make it even harder because, but you, you know, don't have that framework. Yeah. yeah. You, like as an actor, you can latch, you can look at the art direction and be like, okay, I think I know how to do this. Um, <laughs> or, or your fish costume. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but with this, it's like, yeah, you just have to kind of tune into your own emotions and, and the, the emotions of the other performers and really make something work. And I think, yeah, I think it's a very, uh, consistent and emotional and as you said, compassionate, uh, piece of directing. All right. Well, that wraps up this year's individual achievement. I don't know why I, I do get like weirdly nervous about doing this episode. Um, because it just feels like, I feel like Jeremy Renner in the hurt locker looking at all the serials, you know, sure. I feel like I don't sure. know which which one to pick. It can that's going to make for make for an interesting conversation. But I think we did a good job. We talked about some stuff um, that was you know uh, obscure and left field, and also focused, I think, some on some of the big uh, uh, big name stuff that uh, deserves to be called out. So I think this was a good conversation. Okay. Uh, phew. Okay, so you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find uh, reviews of a lot of these movies. You can find the BP's nominations. That's right. Um, and you can find all, all sorts of shit. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I, David, am at Davey Pretension. Tyler's at Tyler Pretension. Uh, Tyler, you also have another podcast called More Than One Lesson. I do. It is uh, on hiatus for a while, and I want to assure people, because I've gotten a couple emails, it is a hiatus. It will come back. I am just... I is this have- a Hey, Watch This situation? Where you're saying no. it's on hiatus, but <laughs> well, that's the thing is I so desperately want to come back, but I just don't have the time. Uh, right. I have been making a mental tally of like the movies that have come out in 2017 that I think would make a great more than one lesson episode and they will someday, but just right now I, uh, cannot fit it into my schedule. All right. Uh, but there's still stuff at the website. Not yeah. More yeah. There's, there yeah. are other podcasts that are going and then there are reviews and then one of our, 
one of my co-hosts and uh, one of our writers, Reed Lackey, is going through is spending this uh, spending 2018 going through all of Alfred Hitchcock's films, and he's right in the middle of the silent era, and it's really interesting if you're a film historian and if you're a, a auteurist slash completist in in regards to Alfred Hitchcock, check it out. Do you any? Uh, uh, I don't think we talked about this. Did you? Or maybe we did. Did you make any movie related New Year's resolutions? Uh, I don't think I did, honestly. Um, I mean, it's aside from that, like, uh, I want to see every BP nominee. Like, I don't okay. want to, like, you know, five in every category, and I want to make sure I see them all before I vote on them. Um, yeah, there's definitely some that I, I don't, don't know if think. I'll be able to do it, by the way. Uh, oh, I'm doing pretty good, actually. Uh, I think when we get to animation, that's where yeah. I start to... Uh, I don't know. Um, some of those are not super available. Yeah. Um, my my movie, uh, you know, with the, I, I often do this where I don't make the New Year's resolution right away. I, I think about it for a while. Sure. My film Twitter New Year's resolution is to follow and also retweet more uh, female minority film critics. All right. Anyway, all right. Uh, so you should seek out. Let me ask you this. Uh huh. Let me ask you this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just did a thing that Jimmy neglected once. Uh, but um, I don't know of any speaking politically, and I'm I'm writing something right now that's making me think in these terms. Um, aside from you know fucking crazy ass Michael Medved. Uh-huh. I don't really know of any like politically conservative film critics. Yeah. Can no, you think the, of any? Uh, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a guy I don't like, um, and I'm suddenly drawing Kyle something. Um, Smith. I think Kyle Smith. Yeah. Oh, he I'm does. Not, he does national review. National review. Yeah. I'm not a yeah. fan of him. Um, every once in a while he'll put like his, his review of the post was actually quite nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think if there are any good, um, film critics that I know are conservatives besides Tyler Smith. Oh, <laughs> um, well, oh, well, I, I didn't know that was coming. Um, yeah, there it's, it's frustrating. There aren't many. Yeah. Um, but and, I don't think I, that's the same thing right now as females and minorities because no, not at all. conservatives are in power right now. I guess uh, so. <laughs> uh, consider a fucking $1.3 trillion uh, infrastructure bill conservative, which I don't. Um, but anyway, that's well, not, they seem that. to just want the win more than anything else these days. Yeah. Um, that's at this point. I'm, I try to draw, uh, draw a distinction between conservative and Republican because they're not this, they're not so similar anymore, but, um, but yeah, it is uh, no, but I don't think there's anything wrong at all with, uh, getting the opinions of people. And I know that the LA online film critics society is very much committed to that idea as yeah. well. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm lucky to get in cause I, am, I'm not, yeah. I'm not giving, getting them anything. Yeah. In terms oh, of when I apply, I'm absolutely going to play the conservative Christian card beca- precisely because we can't think of any. It's like, <laughs> Hey, look, right, yeah. there's a different type of diversity. Somehow I don't think it's going to play. There's, but well, what's her name is a Christian, uh, from Vox, right? Alyssa uh, Wilkinson. Alyssa Wilkinson. Yes. yes. She is. Uh, um, yeah. And she was actually interviewed for, uh, one of the other podcasts over at more than one lesson, oh. um, salty cinema. And, uh, it's a very good episode. I'm a fan of her. Yeah. I, I, I like her a lot. 
Uh, all right, we've gone on too long. Sorry um, about that. I think we did everything. So um, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.